Proverbs 16.9 says this, In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. We're in the middle of a series right now titled, He Has a Reputation. We've been looking at uh, the Old Testament stories where God comes through for his people, not necessarily when they want him to, but when they need him to. And we have looked at um, a couple of stories, and now we're into another week of this, of this teaching series. And this morning, I wanted to give you a little bit of history before we dive deep into the text. It's important for you to understand God's plan for redemption. Before we unpack the actual passage under examination today, it's important for you to understand how, this is, how, how it was led up to this point. So I want you to imagine with me for a moment, just play along, okay? I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you were born in maximum security prison. I know it's a little odd to think about, but I want you to imagine that you were born in maximum security prison. And then you were raised there, and you grew up there into adulthood. And your entire life, you were told where to sleep, when to eat, what hallways you could walk down, when you had outside time, when you didn't have outside time, all of your life was governed over you and you had no freedom to decide when you would eat, when you would sleep, when you would go outside, when you would do any of those things. I want you to imagine that that's your life. And then somewhere in midlife, you were let out of prison. You were set free. And when you were set free, as you were walking out, the person saying goodbye to you said, hey, now I want you to go get a driver's license go get a job, go get married, go take care of your own bills, your own responsibilities. You got to go find a place to live. You got to go find transportation on your own. Make sure you are responsible for your own hygiene. You'd be like, I've been told what to do my entire life. I don't have any, any context for what you're asking me to do. I want you to see how that Parallel that example, that metaphor is exactly what Israel went through when they were released from Egypt. So when the Exodus account happened and all of this Israelite nation was released from captivity and slavery in Egypt, they were also told when to work, where to sleep, when to eat, and all of those things. And then when they were released, they didn't have any structure. They didn't have any guidelines or policy to govern over them, to help them be people of equity and, and glory for Yahweh, to obey God's commands and to follow his way. They had no system of self-governing policy. And so Moses leads them to Mount Sinai, where Moses goes up onto the mount for 40 days and 40 nights and gets the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments. And these Ten Commandments are a written code of conduct, per se, so that the Israelite nation would love God and love others well. Now they could learn how to live fairly. Now they could live a hygienic lifestyle. Now they could understand when to eat and what not to eat. And now they had structure. But the structure, the written code of structure, did not last and so in God's great mercy, God introduces a three-part plan to help Israel govern over themselves, a nation that had no context, no experience for any self-governance. There was no structure, no policy. They needed help. The three-part plan was this. It was judges, it was kings, 
and it was prophets. All human means of Israel governing themselves. The judges were essentially what you think of when you think of a judge. Someone to ultimately decide what was right and what was wrong and help settle the disputes among the Israelites. When it was clear that the judge's policy and idea wasn't exactly going to keep Israel on track because the written code didn't and the judges didn't, then God introduced kings. And the kings were exactly what you think of when you think of a king. This is the introduction of the monarchy. And a monarchy, it just means a rule of one. And King Saul was the first king of Israel. King Saul was an egotistical, insecure, a moody king. And the nation of Israel longed to have a king just like all of the other nations around them. Well, why don't we have a king? They have a king. They have a king. They have a king. Everyone's got a king but us. All the while, they did have a king. It just wasn't in human form. And with the liability of kingship, Saul brings in all of his liabilities as well. And a king is as only good as he is committed to Yahweh, committed to the God of the Bible. And so Israel's like, we want a king. We want a king to help us fight our battles. We're always having these other nations come in closer to, to the land of the promised land. And we want to keep it and stay in the promised land. We're tired of everyone always attacking us. And so we want a king to fight our battles. And so God's like, I'm going to give you what you want. The text explicitly even says that God doesn't think it's a good idea. So be careful what you pray for sometimes. Because God will give you what you want just to teach you a lesson. So God gives them King Saul and King Saul is a failure of a king. He is unable to withstand the responsibility of kingship because his heart is not tethered to the heart of God. And this is where we have the story that we're going to examine today, where this little shepherd boy named David is anointed by the judge Samuel in secrecy because Saul's son Jonathan has the rightful next position to take over the kingship. But God has brought about this shepherd boy named David to rightfully take the throne after Saul. And this is the story that we're going to examine today. When I was in my middle 20s, I spent a lot of time, I thought I was going to do the whole like out west living kind of a thing. I thought I was going to do the whole camp ministry thing. I thought I was going to live out west and God had a different plan for me. But in my 20s, I got really, really good at rock climbing, of all things. And it was like my brothers were into sports, and I was into, like, skateboarding and rock climbing and the guitar. So I was like the black sheep of the family, and so rock climbing went along with that. And so I got really good at it. I spent, like, a lot of years and a lot of money on rock climbing. And what I discovered about rock climbing is that, like, if you do not invest time and money into it, it is very, very difficult to do it safely and to actually climb outside versus the climbing gym. I'm all for the climbing gym, but I climbed inside so I could climb outside. And so when I lived out in Durango, Colorado in my early 20s, I worked at a camp where we took students on these awesome radical rock climbing trips. We'd go out into the mountains of Colorado. We'd go out into the desert of Utah, and I would take these kids rock climbing, and it was always epic. It was always beautiful. It was always incredible. And I was proficient in what I was trained to do. I'd spent years in, in education and training. I had all the right gear. The camp was, it was very safe, very, very safe. And so when we were out there, um, I, I, you know, I basically discovered this is something I'm good at. 
I discovered this is something I know. This is something I have. Oh, oh, I'm well suited for rock climbing. Or at least I thought. Then I had a buddy ask me, hey, Luke, do you want to go climb Castleton Tower? Now, Castleton Tower is a 400-foot tower of sandstone on a 600-foot mound of sand. Do the math. That's 1,000 feet into the air off the deck. 1,000 feet, right? That's high. So you had to, you had to, to hike up this 600-foot sandstone hill to the 400-foot tower of sandstone that you would climb. And I was just like, oh, I've never climbed anything that high. Jared, his name was Jared. He's like, well, we can do it. I'll, I'll guide the way. I'll let you lead the last pitch. And I was like, okay, I, I, I think that sounds like a good time. He goes, oh, by the way, I want to do it at night. I was like, excuse me? He goes, yeah, I think that we should do it at night, man. It, it's going to be spectacular. The stars are going to be great. And I was like, well, now I'm really scared. Here I thought I had all of this experience, and I thought I was well-suited for something like that. And my buddy invites me to go climb this 1,000-foot tower off the deck, and I couldn't believe that I actually said yes, but we, we suited up, we did all the things, we got all the gear, we, we got to the summit of, uh, excuse me, the base of, of the tower to around midnight, around midnight. Headlamps on, all the gear ready to go, and we start climbing. And when I say that I was scared, that's like the understatement of rock climbing. Like, I was petrified. I was terrified at something that grand, that tall. It was intimidating just looking at this thing. And as we climbed, and as we climbed, and as we climbed, I'm climbing with my headlamp, and I'm like, well, I can't see underneath me. And what I can't see, I can't be scared of. So I just kept climbing and climbing and climbing. We got to the fourth pitch, and here we are, like 300 feet on this tower. We're 100 foot from the summit. He's like, hey, Luke, why don't you lead the last pitch? I was like, okay. So I'm leading the last pitch in almost complete darkness with just a headlamp on, and we get about halfway through the last pitch, and I run into a nesting flock of crows. It was terrifying. They come out of the wall. They come out of a hole. They start flying around my head. I'm just like, oh, I'm going to die right now. Like, this is where I'm going to fall to my death. And, and nothing happened. I just kept climbing, and we got to the summit. And it was breathtaking, and it was amazing. The reason I share that story with you is because I believe that as human beings, each one of us is being called to do and engage in something great for God, but there are external factors that you believe are outside of your control that are around you, but not inside of you, that you're thinking, well, because it's dark out, I won't be able to summit, right? Because of my family of origin, God cannot use me greatly. Because of my birthplace of origin, God is going to use me as a junior varsity, never a varsity. Because I don't have that degree, because I don't have the right skin tone, because this, because that, because this, and we find all of these things that are outside of our control, and we blame them and say, that is the reason God cannot use me. I'm divorced. I'm single. I'm too young. I'm too old. I can't control my age. I can't speed up the age, and I can't slow it down either. It was dark. I was terrified. Some of you are looking at your life and you're thinking, I'm terrified. Because I know God has called me for something great. God has called me to step out in faith. But because there's this external thing that I can't control, and I'm facing it, and it feels too big, it feels too intimidating, there's just no way I can engage it. Here's what we're going to discover as we open the text this morning. God only needs the ability he has already imparted to you. 
and the availability you are willing to impart to him. That's it. So for those of you in the room this morning that are struggling with trying to figure out whether or not God actually is interested in using your life for his glory, you need to understand that God only needs the ability he has already given to you in your availability, your yes to him. And some of you are living a life right now of obscurity, and you're wondering, why is it that God isn't using me the way I thought he would use me? Do I need more skills? And the answer is probably not. God has already gifted you with plenty for you to steward. The question is, is are you available? Have you already said yes to him? Or did you say no to the scary rock climb? Did you say no because it was too dark out at night? Because it was too scary and you'd never done anything like that before? I know that I am not the only one in here who understands this. And if you're wrestling this morning as to whether or not God could actually use you, the answer is simply, it is yes, God can and he wants to. That's what you might not believe yet, is that God can use you and he wants to use you. Here's the, here's the thing that blew my mind. You're actually better suited to do the thing God's calling you to do than you think you are. It's just that you've talked yourself out of it because of external factors, because you're too afraid of what might happen if you stepped out in faith. Would you open your Bible, please, to 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 1. It'll be on the screen to my right and left, but it's church, so you should have a Bible with you, whether it's on your phone or paper. And so this is 1 Samuel chapter 17, starting in verse 1. This is the story of David and Goliath. I'm going to move quick, so I want you to focus and pay attention now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes, Damim, between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. So the Philistines had moved into the promised land area. Uh, The Philistines were polytheists, but familiar with Jehovah, the God of the Bible. And they did fear the Jews because they knew that Israel had a reputation of winning battles because God. The Philistines were not actually all that great in number. They were actually a military uh, aristocracy, if that makes sense, who ruled predominantly the Canaanite population. So they were kind of the big dogs in town. They were the the ones in, in charge. They were disciplined soldiers, and because they had a monopoly in iron, they, were, they had like superior weapons. They had like the biggest, boldest armor and weapons and swords, but they had a secret weapon, and his name was Goliath. Verse 4, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, what a terrible town that called, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet and on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. So Goliath is described here as standing nine feet, nine inches tall. That's how the ancient math works out. Wearing a coat of mail that weighed 125 pounds. So for those of us who like work out with weight vests on, we got nothing on this guy. 
A coat of mail, 125 pounds. Some of you only weigh 125 pounds. Does that make sense? And so this is a whole coat of armor beyond that that he's wearing. Nine feet, nine inches. This ain't no like small opponent. This is a formidable opponent. So verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Well, sure, I would be too. Goliath was trained for battle since youth. If the Israelites could provide a champion who was able to defeat Goliath, the Philistines would submit to the Jews and be their servants. But if not, the Israelites must consider themselves defeated and become the servants of the Philistines. You can see how, like, this is not an even fight. This is way worse than, like, the guy brought a knife to a gunfight. This is like a little shepherd boy up against a trained warrior who had all of the armor and all of the weaponry commensurate to winning actual battlefield battles. This is where we're introduced to David, verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Again, our introduction to David. The musician shepherd boy who pulled double duty and was the warrior's chef during battle. That's David. I can play a little guitar, and I can bring you some food. There's David. By all metrics and by all standards, David does not fit the description of a typical warrior, a typical soldier. David would stand out awkwardly in a photo of wartime veterans. Shout out to all my veterans in the room. But as we will see here in a moment, there was more to David than meets the eye. We'll find out that David is proficient with a very deadly weapon called a slingshot. He's scrappy, and he's actually already killed a lion and a bear that we'll find out later in the text. So the scrawny, awkward junior hire going through puberty with bad B.O., is probably not consistent with who David actually was. Was he Goliath? No. No. But he was not prepubescent little David. This guy was scrappy. And he was a shepherd, and he had the responsibility of protecting sheep, and so he's already killed a lion and a bear. He's proficient with a weapon. Verse 16 
For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening, took his stand. This is referring to Goliath. Now Jesse said to the son of David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. By the way, an ephah is an ancient Hebrew measuring unit that is roughly equivalent to nine gallons. So David ain't weak. You know, that's a lot of weight. I'd like to see any one of us carry nine gallons of flour around, all nimble-bimble-like. Verse 20, early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. (laughs) Seems like bad timing if you ask me. Uh, I imagine David being like, hey, hey, I know it's not great timing, but how are you guys? How are you guys doing? Verse 23, as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. First time. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Like, can you picture this with me just for like a moment? Here is David and his brothers talking because David has the responsibility of taking them food. Hey, how are you guys doing? I need to like take back some like assurance that you guys are doing pretty well. And then David, for the first time, here's like the fee-fi-fo-fum guy, right? I smell the blood of a shepherd boy guy, Goliath guy. And I can just imagine David being like, what is that defiance you're saying against my God? What is that heresy that you're saying against my God? What are those words of, of critique and death? You're saying, you have no idea who you're talking to. I can just picture like David, right? The scrappy, like well-fed, well-fit, like the guy who can play guitar and like win a CrossFit game, that David, like look over and be like introduced to Goliath for the first time. Verse 25. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? Referring to Goliath. He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family taxes from taxes in Israel. King Saul is so desperate to win this battle and win it by human means. And that is so important to understand the difference between Saul and the difference between David and Saul is that Saul wanted to win the battle against the Philistines, but by human means, by their might and their strength. They wanted to win that battle because they were well-fed enough and had had equitable swords. Our swords are at least as big as your swords, which was not true, by the way, at all. And Saul was so desperate that he bribes the army and says, look, if any one of you is willing to step up to Goliath, not only will I give you riches and wealth and taxes, I'll I'll let you marry one of my daughters, and and I'll make sure your house is taken off the tax roll, right? 
Verse 26, David asks the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger and at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Verse 29. This is where David gets defensive. Now, what have I done? Said David. Can I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. Verse 32, David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. Here is reputation number one. God will have you face your greatest fear before he uses you greatly. And it will come packaged with a lot of dissenting voices. It will come with critique, both from people of superiority and authority and from people who you thought you loved and you thought loved you His brother first gives him the critique, and then his king gives him the critique. And I know it's scary to obey God, but you know what is scarier? Settling. Settling for a life of obscurity because you did not have the courage and trust the name of the Lord to step out in faith, as David did. And it will come with critiquing voices. This is precisely what a curse is. For any of you who are un. Uh, aware of what a curse actually is. A curse is a word of critiquing death from another brother or sister in Christ. Typically, a parent, a pastor, an aunt, an uncle, a teacher, someone of authority and superiority doesn't give you critical feedback. They give you critiquing death. And those words of critiquing death, you carry inside of you throughout your personhood and throughout your adult life. What is good, though, is that those curses can be broken off in the name of Jesus. And by the way, after service, if any of you feel like you are carrying the words of critiquing death over you uh, from someone you loved and someone you trusted and someone who had authority in your life, I would love to join you in the prayer room with the team. We would love to facilitate prayer to break off curses from your personhood. It is possible in the name of Jesus. But if you decide to step out in faith and you say yes to God, all of those voices in your life are going to creep up and surface up and you got to be ready for them. God calls people who are busy not people who are looking for ways to avoid responsibility. And I think some of you this morning need to know and hear that the reason you are fighting God on whatever it is he's calling you to do is because you're not sure if you want to take upon yourself the responsibility of that calling. David's fearlessness in the face of what seemed to be an impossible situation was met with those dissenting voices of his brother and then his king. And this morning, you must accept right now that if you say yes to God, the enemy is going to target you. And praise God, your King Jesus is superior to the enemy. 
So whatever the enemy decides to tell you, Jesus can tell you something else that is fully true. So if the enemy is saying to you, you can't do that, Luke. You can't climb that tower at night. You don't have enough ability. You don't have enough skill. You don't have the right resume. You don't have enough experience. You're going to fall to your death. And some of you feel like if you were to step out in faith and obey God with your life, you're going to fall to your death. But here's what I know about God. He has already imparted to you an ability. And all you have to do is take that ability and give it back to God and say yes with your availability. He doesn't need you to be him. He needs you to be you. And some of you think you have to have God-like power to obey God. You need God-like power to step out in faith and God's power is available to you. You don't have to save anyone. Only the power of Jesus can save someone. You have to obey God. And for those of you who are trying to figure out, am I Saul or am I David? Am I the one trying to get the dreams and the vision and the promises of my life via human means and human cleverness and human skills? You will be circling those wagons for a long, long time. But if you choose to instead adopt the heart of David and say, yeah, you've given me an ability, And now I'm going to give you my availability and I'm going to trust that what is done in the name of God comes with the power of God. All of a sudden, you're in a totally different territory. Verse 34 says, But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. It's like where David's like, Look at my resume, man. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the land, excuse me, the hand of this Philistine. So it's like, go and the Lord be with you. This was not like a, yeah, you're right. You're right. You've killed a bear and a lion. The Lord be with you. This was like, this kid is going to get decimated by Goliath. The Lord be with you, son. Good luck. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. And he said, I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he, took all, then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Isn't this great? We're like the self-claiming uh, you know, expert of battle, Saul. It's just like, you better put on all this armor, my man, or you're just going to get totally you know, cut to pieces. Men and women of faith obey God no matter what the experts say. I don't care what the experts say. Obeying God is the only thing that matters. And in this case, David knew that. Here's reputation number two. God does not need our help. He wants our heart. God does not need your help. That vision he gave you, that promise he gave you, that thing he's called you to do, he doesn't need your help. He wants your participation. There's nothing you can do for God that he can't do for himself. He is fully authoritative, fully powerful. 
There's, there's nothing in the future that God couldn't just do on his own. He can do everything on his own, by his own power, by his own means. The invitation is for us to participate with him. He does not need your help. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. And you're just so concerned as to whether or not that vision, that dream, that promise on your life will actually come to fruition. He doesn't need your help to fulfill that promise. He wants your heart to participate with his. Verse 41, meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bare in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was a little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you would come out with me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. And you know how the story ends, so you know that your enemy's bark is louder than his bite. Some of you have believed the enemy's voice now for so long, and you're so scared that the enemy's voice actually carries credible authority with it, but it doesn't. Call his bluff. Call the enemy's bluff by stepping out in faith in whatever it is that God is asking you to do. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spirit and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that this is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him, reaching into his bag and taking out a stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. I don't know what you're facing today. But but Goliath came out for 40 days in a row, for 40 days, taunting the Israelite nation. Words of defiance, most of which the army believed the enemy's voice. I, I don't know what you're facing today, but the enemy has convinced you, or at least trying to convince you, to not step out in faith, to not face that greater fear. But it's all smoke and mirrors. Because David's ability with his availability became with the Lord's name, his victory. And that is what you must carry now deep down in your soul. That whatever ability, your ability plus your availability, so whatever God's already gifted you, plus your yes, plus the name of the living God is the victory. And God is calling all of us to participate With him, Blaise Pascal said this, Lord, help me to do great things as though they were little, since I do them with your power, and little things as though they were great, since I do them in your name. Verse 50, so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, without a sword in his hand. He struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword which just seems really unnecessary. He's already dead. You've heard it said before that the West is wild, but I think actually the ancient Near East is a little wild because David was promised that he would 
not only kill this Philistine, but the entire army would be given into Israel's hands. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Verse 52, they, Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sharim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, as surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse. Of Bethlehem. David, the prefiguration of Jesus the shepherd, the truly anointed king who would take the kingship from Saul and rule over the Hebrew nation, the bloodline from which the Messiah Jesus would come, an archetypal figure of Jesus the king. There are those of you right now in this room that are faced with your own metaphorical Goliath, something that you just think is insurmountable, something that you think is just impossible, something that you think is just no way. There's just no way. Perhaps it's this like lifelong lie that the enemy has convinced you of, and it's keeping you from, from, from action. It's keeping you in a perpetual state of inaction, really. But David is proof that that is untrue. And David is proof that when you step out in faith and offer God your abilities and offer God your availability, what comes with the name of the Lord comes with the power of the Lord. And the victory is set. And that is the faithfulness of our God. We have the greatest God. And he is worthy of our praise and our trust and our yes. So I want you to look deep down inside your heart this morning and ask yourself, where am I saying no to God? And then trust him with your yes. In closing, I want to share a, a poem with you briefly here by someone in our, our church here. Uh, Sean Fitzgerald actually gave me permission to read this poem to you. The name of the poem is Warrior Unsheathed. A warrior has taken refuge for far too long deep in the hollows of a self-made cave. As David, in days of old, once hid from his king, the shadows of this cavern cover his guilt and shame. He has set aside his weapons of ink and quill and song of truth, yet his mission still calls, reveal your scars for your gift has come from above. Quote, unsheathe your soul, for I have won your war, declares the Lord. My blameless blood has been poured out to cover your rebellion. You have nothing to fear. I have risen to take my throne. Beyond these walls, another battle yet looms before the warrior. And a formidable foe lurks wearing three faces, guilt, shame, and fear, disguising them all in whispers and lies. So before this broken warrior can engage, he must gird his loins in righteousness and wrap truth around his waist. He must don faith and salvation, bending a knee to pray in the spirit. Only then, ready for the flaming arrows and dark powers of unseen realms, can this simple man break into the light beyond his dark mountain hideaway. 
The battlefield before him is riddled with the ferocious devils of technological wonder, electric eyes and metallic stars. A treacherous landscape of self-glorification and judgment unfolds, and the air is laden with the stench of godlike authority. The world outside this cave grows darker, darker even than the ancient realm of Babel. But today, self-proud architects of this tower seek to be God, not content to merely reach him. If this mission is to be accomplished, as I know it must, I cannot shelter my secrets in my shame. For the war paint on my face and camouflage on my body is the Lamb's holy blood. The time has come to reveal my due Adamic song. Bursting forth from this damp and dungeonous tomb, my fingers tear away the scales of the enemy's lies covering my skin. I bathe in the light and now clad in God's armor. I am born anew, the redeemed Adam's son, ready for battle. And for those of you who are being invited, like David, to step out in faith, you too can know that the battle is the Lord's. Now, here's the thing. Most of us aren't trying to be king. So what does this mean for the everyday follower of Jesus just like you and just like me? Well, as promised for every week of this entire series, we're going to have a a testimonial of someone who's actively living in this or has a history of it. And so I want to invite this morning to the platform, Ryan Hyatt. Would you just give a round of applause to Ryan Hyatt? Uh, Ryan, I think that we've known each other almost 10 years now, something close to that. Yeah. yeah, and it was what, maybe eight or nine years ago that we did a huddle together, and then you and your family moved here to help plant this church here at Northwest, and we're just grateful and thankful that you've got a story for us. So, love you. Give it up for Ryan one more time. Yeah. Thanks, Luke. Good morning, church family. Um, my name is Ryan Hyatt, if I haven't met you yet. I apologize for that. Me and my wife, Kelly, have uh, three boys, Dale, Duke, and Joseph. And, um, you know, let's talk after this or, or some other time. Um, Pastor Luke has been my most important spiritual mentor, like he said, for, for going on about uh, 10 years. And that really ramped up uh, when he huddled us, uh, what did you say, eight, eight or nine years ago, something like that. And that's kind of where this story begins. So in that huddle, we talked a lot about uh, purpose and gifts. And uh, at that time, I was in a job that I enjoyed. I enjoyed who I was working for, but it was just kind of uh, a dead-end road of sorts. And I was feeling a calling to go to go further. And, and after a lot of uh, prayerful consideration with me and, me and my wife and a couple of invitations, um, sort of in the midst of this huddle, um, we felt that God was calling me down a new path. And so we took the leap to change careers, and I became a financial advisor at Edward Jones. Now, to run a successful practice, you have to have clients. And the Edward Jones way of getting clients, at least back then, was going around and knocking on doors. And this was sort of my, you know, Goliath moment. Because that was terrifying to me. Studying you know, learning the material, passing the exams, that stuff was easy and fun. Um, but having to go out in a suit in the middle of the summer and go door to door and introduce yourself to people, you know, around where your practice was going to be and just say, hey, this is what I'm doing. Let me know if you want to talk. Um, it was absolutely terrifying. I'm sure some of you have gone door to door and they can they can attest to that. 
I was going to have to do that all day, every day, for the first five weeks, and then a couple hours every day after that going forward, um, and I was not looking forward to it. So all weekend long before this started, you know, I just have this pit in my stomach going to bed Sunday night. The worst Sunday scaries you've ever felt. Um, go out on Monday morning, go out on Tuesday, go out on Wednesday, and turns out it went terribly, right? I, I come home Wednesday, I think I had knocked on something like 120 doors. There was one person who was willing to, you know, reluctantly have another conversation with me at some point. I came home and just bawled my eyes out to Kelly. It's just like, how is this going to work? Um, Thursday, it rained all day, so I didn't go out. But Friday, I prayed so hard. I dragged myself back out there, and I prayed so hard, God, give me something. And, of course, on that Friday, the very first house I walked up to, the guy was like, it's so weird that you're here. Me and my wife were just talking about how we need to talk to someone about this. And I was like, thank God. And so that was just the the boost of confidence I needed for the rest of the day. I, I don't remember any interaction after that. Every door could have slammed in my face. I wouldn't have cared, right? God just gave me that little wink to let me know he's got me. Um, so I got through my five weeks. I I don't have all the numbers anymore, but in those first uh, couple years, uh, I knocked on something like three or 4,000 doors. Um, I would never say it really got any easier, uh, but there were a few things that enabled me to do it. So I wanted to share those. So number one, I was getting up every day and I was reading the Bible. Turns out, pretty great book, right? Um, it's, it, it has a ton for us in there. When, you know, God, so often we, we want to hear from God, we want God to speak to us. He's written us an entire book that's written for us. And so if we get in there and we read those words, the Holy Spirit will bring that into your soul, you know, exactly what God is trying to speak to you. So um, I, I was taking inspiration from everything, you know, maybe David and Goliath over here. Um, one story that really resonated with me was the disciples being sent out uh, two by two in Mark 6. Jesus says, take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts, wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet. Fun fact, that's where Taylor Swift got the idea for the song Shake It Off. It was from Mark 6. Um, now, obviously, I wasn't getting sent out by Jesus himself on an evangelical mission. Um, but I can read a story like that and say, okay, God is sending these, out, sending these people out for his purpose, for his mission but he knows they're going to run into obstacles. There's going to be towns that say, no, 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 no thanks. You know, he didn't just make the road super easy. So just taking some of that inspiration, um, reading the Bible. Number two, I was praying diligently, specifically. This was part of my, my morning routine. I was praying for the day ahead. I prayed that God would guide me to the right doors, that he would prepare my path ahead of me, that he would prepare the person that I was going to talk to that they wouldn't be weirded out by a stranger, a sweaty stranger in a suit. Um, and these stories from the Bible that I was reading and taking inspiration from, I was weaving those into my prayers. Never, never before had my prayer life been so alive than, than taking God's words and then sort of bringing them back to him in prayer. Number three, I had to firmly remind myself of something Luke taught us during this huddle, which was just so key for this time. And it was that and something he mentioned today, that I'm in charge of the inputs, uh, 
and God is in charge of the outcomes should be so freeing for us as Christians. We should be the boldest people around, just like David, how everyone else was shaking in their boots, and David was like, wait, I know who, I know the God I serve. If God has called you to something, it's, you can be sure it's for a good reason. I don't think that means you're going to be successful at absolutely everything. Like, like we said, you know, some of those towns turn those people away. Um, but I was able to have that confidence to go out there and say, if God has called me to this, it's for a good reason. Even if I get fired a few weeks from now, maybe it's just to make me a better person or I've touched someone's life in some way or something like that. Um, and he'll have something else for me just around the corner. So I still have a long way to go, but God's faithfulness has been evident in the fact that I've been six years in a business where 50% of people drop out in the first six months. Um, and, and I'm excited for where he's going to take us in the future. So I just want to wrap up by saying, if God has you facing Goliath right now or in the future, get into the word, read the Bible. He has spoken to us and he wrote it down in a book. It's very convenient. Number two, get into prayer. The Holy Spirit will talk to you. And number three, just remember that you're in charge of the inputs. God's in charge of the outcomes. Like Luke said, show up faithfully. So um, thanks for giving me that time. I will pray and wrap us up. Heavenly Father, we want to come before you um, humbly. We recognize that you are almighty God. Uh, you, you created everything in this universe and yet you created us individually, specifically, and, um, and we know you want to use us. God, I pray that you would give us the boldness of David, not to rely on our own power, but to rely on yours. And we know that when we truly are relying on you to make it happen, we will be closer to you than we ever have felt before. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.